Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Before we get into today's episode, if you could, please subscribe to the channel so you don't miss any of these awesome interviews. And if you'd like a free comic sent directly to your email, make sure you check out aguildy.com forward slash free comic to get issue one of my hit in the horror series medicine sent directly to you. That's aguildy.com dot com forward slash free comic that's a g u i l d e dot com forward slash free comic enjoy all right everyone thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast with me today is david pepos david pepos is a ringo award you're a ringo award nominated writer right am i right on that yep uh yep writer and creator of spencer and Locke, uh going to the chapel chapel the OZ, and uh, I think when this comes out, uh, his newest title, The Scout's Honor, will be out with Aftershock, I think, or a couple days. So, uh, David, thank you so much for uh, you know joining me today, man. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat um, about uh, books and process and uh, anything else uh, that, that, that you'd like me to go into. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, w- I, was, um, I, I was a fan of yours I randomly picked up Spencer and Locke at my comic book store just because I think, oh, you're welcome, man. Uh, it was one of those titles that I feel like if you get it, you get it immediately. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's Calvin and Hobbes, but like, uh, <laughs> like really adult. And yes. so, uh, uh, and, and like, it was one of those things that it just, it, it just really struck me. And uh, I, I just want to chat about that for a little bit. Cause I think, Please. um, it, there was a scene in there that was probably my favorite scene in uh, a, a lot of comics. It's right at the beginning of issue one. They're at the mm-hmm. diner and they're mm-hmm. talking. And then yep. the the waitress is like, looks at them like, who are you talking to? And then <laughs> the, the, the camera or not the camera, but like the yeah. point of view switches. Yep. And you see uh, you see him talking to the stuffed animal and like he's yeah. looking at her like she's the weirdo. And yeah. it's like one of my favorite scenes because it like Thank just, you. It That's- just in- encapsulates that whole book that's in the a scene nutshell. that sold the book that's the scene really? that sold the book um uh when so for those who, who don't aren't familiar with spencer and Locke, uh, the quick high concept for it is uh what if calvin and Hawke grew up in the city uh it's about hard-boiled detective Locke, who uh has grown up to become um a, a police detective and his partner is his childhood imaginary panther named spencer um, who he kind of had to invent to help him survive his his particularly traumatic and abusive uh, upbringing. So um, yeah, no, that scene. Uh, it's funny when I shopped that book around, and, and we eventually got picked up by Action Lab. Uh, we the very first those first six pages uh, in the book in the first issue cover. That's what we sent. There, we didn't change anything in, from the pitch process. And um, I remember our letterer Colin Bell. He had said that when he read the script that was the scene that got him on board um and uh yeah you know just yeah i and i know uh dave Dwanch, um the uh, who was an editor at action lab and he was the one that kind of pulled us out of the slush pile he said the same thing um so yeah it's it's funny how uh just a little bit of comedy in the right spot uh can really win over readers um because uh, it, that was the first thing that I had ever published. Um, I, I had written some short scripts just for my own peace of mind, but I never got them made or produced. Um, 
So yeah, that, uh, thank you for saying that. It really means a lot because, uh, yeah, that was, that was sort of the first, that was sort of the threshold for me, that particular page. That was when I was like, okay, maybe I'll make a book out of this. And, um, so I'm glad you liked it. Thank you so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, man. I thought it was, it was really well done. It was, it was super clever, clever. And it was one of those, like, you know, when people, people say like, oh, this is funny, but like, they have like that stone cold, like, oh, like LOL text, like, oh, it was funny. Yeah. Like, it was funny. And like, there's no yeah. like actual, like Laughing. emotion to it. That yeah. was a page where I was like, oh, this is, this is really funny. Like the timing, like comedic timing yeah. was really well, well done. And there was something really tragic about it. Yes. which I I kind of see um, a theme of yeah. that going through your book. Like I've read, uh, I think I've read everything other than uh, Spencer and Locke too. Mm-hmm. And obviously Scouse Honor is not out right. yet. Um, but I, I actually, I just got uh, my copy uh, digitally of the OZ and I just read that. It got done reading that. And there's a, there's a thread there through all yeah. of your books of like this, like really emotional, um, weight that your characters are are kind of holding Thank on some, some baggage yeah um, is that something that you you're doing consciously is that something that just happens to find itself in your writing because i know you know yeah. when when i'm writing i'm always uh i always feel like I'm, I'm dwelling in like domestic problems sure um and not, i don't know if that's like it's becoming more of a conscious thing because i'm conscious of it now but i think when yeah. i started it wasn't so i was wondering how that kind of how yeah. that developed for I- you it's a great question. Um, and I do think often I, I do gravitate towards characters that have past trauma and have been kind of marinating in it for a while. Um, that's definitely the case for Spencer and Locke, uh, my uh, diehard at a wedding book, uh, going to the chapel, uh, the OZ um, is yeah. Oftentimes I have characters who they, for me, it's, it's, it's a nice way of sort of developing the characterization. It's kind of figuring out like, okay, what's the chip on their shoulder? Um, what's the thing that's kind of weighing them down that they're going to have to get past in order to sort of see through their current adventure. Um, That said, it's not something that I always do. Um, uh, For example, Scout's Honor. uh, And and for those who don't know about that high concept, it's uh, it's the story of a, a, a cult that has risen from the ashes of a nuclear war and their Bible is an old Boy Scout manual. That's, and so that's such a cool, a, I don't mean to cut you off, man, but that's such no. an awesome concept. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. um, and our protagonist for that series is a, a scout named Kit, um, who's really kind of the epitome of all that is good with the Ranger Scouts of America, as this, as this cult has taken a calling itself. There's only one secret, which is this is like an ultra masculine like uh, cult, and they only allow men to serve. And Kit has had to conceal her identity as a woman in order to pursue what she considers her calling. And she is, we get to kind of watch her trauma unfold in real time without spoiling too much about the book. Um, She's going to kind of discover a pretty nasty secret at the heart of the Ranger Scout doctrine. And so for, that was an interesting kind of shift in tone for me is watching her get hit with this trauma and then have to deal with it in real time. Um, but yeah, I, I always really liked having, I, I, I think I do ge- generally gravitate towards having characters who have a past, um, like something that really has kind of stuck with them has maybe kind of hobbled them a little bit. Um, and I think in part it's because it, it really kind of, 
it, it does double duty for me, you know, um, readers empathize with that sort of stuff. Uh, Cause I think we all have stuff in our past that we don't like to think about, but it also really kind of helps, helps me triangulate, like what's this character about? Where have they come from? Um, what are any particular triggers they might have, you know, any particular fears or dislikes or challenges to their character. If I can kind of load it into trauma, that works really well for me. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it, it, like any sort of creative tool, it's something that just like you said, how you try to stay kind of cognizant of all your stories are about domestic problems. For me, I'm kind of like, okay, are there any scripts that I can write that don't have something like this or can sort of take that past history and take it in a more positive spin? Um, I do think past is prologue. And I do think that uh, somebody's upbringing or their past really does define how we see them in, in the here and now in a script. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different angles you can take with it, but I do find that for me, trauma is something that it's um, it's a little redemptive. It can be redemptive. I should say, you know, you kind of start from the bottom and then you, there's no place to go, but up. And um, I think that arc also uh, winds up being very sympathetic for readers. Yeah. And you know, it, um, it, it gives, you know, in, in screenwriting terms, it gives your characters a really good ghost that they have to yeah. overcome and, call, and causes a bunch of different um, problems. And I, I think you, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like you're you're leaning on it. I think you do a, a yeah. really a really great job of of tying that into Thank your you. characters. Um, and one thing, uh, in, you were talking, I, I have like two questions that that came yeah. from what you said. But the first one is like what comes first? Is it the high concept or is it the, and, and then that generates your characters and then you find that, or is it the characters and then you find the concept or is it like some weird thing where you like all of a sudden stumble on like, I don't know. I, I was listening to this one guy. I was like, yeah, I, I saw this bag in a tree and that's what got this. Like how, like so oh, many funny. ideas like come from all these different things. And I, I just, yeah. you do a really good it's, job when you're talking about your stories yeah. Uh, of really laying it out for people to understand them. And I, I was always really curious what kind of comes first for you. Is it the chicken or the egg sure. type of concept? It, well, you know, it, this, this, this will sound like a combo because it definitely, it's different for different stories. Um, Spencer and Locke. Um, so, so for me, usually it's, if I can, if I can sort of riff a couple of sentences on the concept enough, like, maybe like three or four sentences without hitting a wall, then I'm like, okay, maybe this, this could be something uh, for Spencer and Locke. I had said for my first book, um, I wanted to do something that was kind of an homage to classic Frank Miller. Um, Cause that was the first writer as a kid that made me realize that real writers made comics. And um, I thought what was the weirdest thing I could throw against old school Frank Miller. And it wasn't until I, I, I said Calvin and Hobbes that I sort of this idea of Locke, kind of clicked in my head like immediately just like a cop beat up kind of grinning in the rain looking a little little deranged and he's holding a stuffed animal what's that guy's life like uh, yeah. what's his upbringing what's his childhood um but for like going to the chapel um which is my book i describe that as like a die hard meets wedding crashers it's about, which is uh, a really which is a really robbers. that's like a really spot yeah. on like like a comparison as well like I, it's, it's just i find it really refreshing to hear to hear you have your ideas so so well thought out because like uh, I, i've like 
um, I've had conversations where like someone's explaining their, their idea to me. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I internalized a lot of that. Um, my screenwriting professor, um, uh, I, I went to Brandeis university for, for undergrad and, um, I, I, I like to say that there's, there's only three people, uh, in my life whose voices I've internalized my mother, my therapist, and my screenwriting teacher. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Mark Weinberg was my screenwriting teacher and he always, he, I think really instilled in me early, like, oh, try this meets this just to, to give you, you, you two points of triangulation to kind of figure out where your, your, your series is going. And I think I've kind of taken that one step further in the fact that I like to take two wildly different inspirations, um, and two wildly different tones and smash them together because then if I ever hit a wall, I can just switch gears. Um, it, it's, it's, it's purely laziness on my part. Um, I, I but, think it's uh, genius. I mean, I, I think, I think it's re- <laughs> like, honestly, like, like the, the, when, when you're writing and like, um, yeah. the hardest thing to do is try to tell someone your idea and have them get it. Sure. And like yeah. the fact that you, you've boiled it down, um, to something that works for you and it's easily to, for someone to digest. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's also spot on to like, you know, I've also heard like, it's this meets this. And then you read it. It's like, this has nothing to do with, right. you know, whatever it is. But yeah. like going to the chapel, it's what I heard meets wedding crashers. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's, uh, you know, it, it, that, that story, like that one was about, well, actually, no. As I think about it, I did. I, th- I did come up with the uh, the bank robbers hitting a, a wedding first, but the very next thought was, "Oh no, it's a story about commitment. It's a story about a bride who's got cold feet and isn't sure if she can go through with it." Um, you know. But that said, um, so I think I do usually kind of gravitate towards the high concept first, but only. But then I have to immediately like immediately immediately like next sentence figure out is there an emotional core to this or is this just me saying a random concept um because concepts are kind of a dime a dozen um i I feel like the emotional core to it that's your that's your idea is concept plus core um and uh there are a lot of ideas that don't pass the smell test for for this um and some of that is just there's no emotion core to it and sometimes it's you are not the right person to tell that story um i i've come up with two high concepts of like big like i think i would consider them blockbuster kind of stories and realizing like in about 10 minutes like oh i can't tell the story like it's it would be me trying to tell like i'd have to try to tell somebody's authentic life experience that i have not lived and it's just not my place to like try to tell that story um but yeah, I, 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 I play with concept a lot. Uh, my, 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 my best friend, uh, George Marston, who's a, 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 we came up in the trenches together at Newsarama. Um, I feel bad, like at least twice a week, if not more. I always say, okay, I think I have an idea for something. And 90% of the time it's garbage. Um, but that's the thing is that like, that's fun for me, you know? And it's fun, like it's a fun way to bond with my friend you know, just to be like, hey, what do you think of this idea? And sometimes he'll be like, oh, that's a cool idea. And as soon as I say it, I'm like, oh, that's crap. Or sometimes uh, he'll be like, mm, that's not good. Or mm, that movie was called Inception. Um, and then every great once in a while, he'll be like, are you a member of the LGBTQ community? You probably can't tell a story 
that is about the LGBTQ experience. And it'd be like, duh, right. Okay. You know, leave that, leave that in the cutting room floor. Um, but yeah, I, you know, for me, it's always about, I find an idea, I like it, and I basically lock it in a drawer for a month. Um, and the idea behind that is if I like that idea again in a month or three months or six months, then it's worth pursuing. And if I've forgotten about it or I don't like it in three to six months, then it was never going to pass the pass muster in the industry. So why spend the year it would take to get the thing made? So, yeah, I mean, and you know full well, I mean, like, I think anybody making comics knows it's kind of like the time dilation in Interstellar, you know, where like anything you write, it's not going to see the light of day for like probably a year and a half at minimum Um, because you got to get the art done and then you got to do the pre-orders and you got to get it, you know, or if you're self-publishing, you know, you got to do your Kickstarter and then you got to do your printing and then you got to do your fulfillment. Um, You know, my Kickstarter for the OZ, I started working that in 2017. um, And now everybody's finally seeing it in December of 2020. So yeah, I mean, it's always a long game and just kind of figuring out, like, you know, if I have a finite amount of time and a finite amount of resources and a finite amount of focus, what's worth me sticking around for in the long haul? Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Like, um, like when you're writing, especially in comics, like it's you're not going to write something and then turn around and like have it be made like it's no. that's like that's my, my first series, Man of Sin we worked on it for like five years before it was finished. Like, it, like yeah, like it, it's, it was like a long, long process, especially when you're doing it yeah. independently too. Right. Like yeah. it's, there's, there's only, you know, so much time and resources, like you said, that, that you have yeah. what a couple things. Um, first one, what, how much of your screenwriting background do you pull into comics and what has changed in the comics medium from screenwriting because I, I i i love the fact uh i i have a degree in screenwriting as well so like it, it's i, I kind of like to have these kind of conversations because it's interesting yeah. to kind of kind of uh see what changes what permutations are different how you incorporate some of the things um so yeah what what's your take on that sure well you know so it's funny for me I feel like I was about half as good of a screenwriter as I am a comics writer. Um, I, so my, my college did not have a full screenwriting major. Um, I, I, uh, I majored in American studies, which is basically journalism, legal studies, film studies, history, and culture. Um, but I took two or three semesters of screenwriting Um I think for me, I always got tripped up on the form of it all, the structure of it all. Um, you know, just, you know, like, for example, saying, you know, you want to have a lot of white space on your script, for example. Uh, that That's never been my forte, ever. Um, and things like, you know, you could write it anywhere between 90 pages and 120 pages. And I'm kind of, you know, for me, that's like, oh, that's, that's, that's too much vari- variation um comics i really like the limitations kind of become the form and so you have 20 to 22 pages on average for 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 a given first issue and you can do you know 
let's say on average between four and six panels a page, unless you're doing a splash page or you're doing um, a nine panel grid, you can maybe fit. My metric is 17 bits of dialogue or sound effects per page, but some people might have a much smaller metric. How many words can you fit in a balloon? This for me gives me a lot of structure and it really kind of helps me. um, I, I keep using the word triangulate. But I, it helps me triangulate how I kind of chisel through my script. Um, that said, I do think the way that the comics industry has shifted, particularly in the last 20 years, yeah, there's a lot more in common with screenwriting. Um, you know, it's very visual. Um, you know, you see the kind of work that, and I know it's weird sort of saying them out loud now, um, you know, all things considered, but like really like Warren Ellis, you know, kind of trailblazed. Um, or, you know, Mark Miller, and, 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 and to uh, some extent, the, the widescreen storytelling of comics. Um, people want, it's a delicate balance. They want to be able to have like a satisfying chunk of a story, but they also want the story to breathe enough so they can have these kind of cool blockbuster crowd pleaser moments. Um, it's not like Stan Lee or Chris Claremont you know, um, where you could sort of have these long narration to sort of paper through um, the, the gaps of the storytelling. This, they, now you have to be in it. And if you're not in the thick of it in the middle of a scene, it's because you're transitioning to another scene. You know, it's not like, it's not like you can sort of keep your reader at a distance, even if you use third person narration. Um, but yeah, I think, it, you know, I do think comics... I think the pressure on comics creators now is more intense than it's been in a long time. And I know you can make the argument that like, Oh, Stan Lee was writing like a dozen books at a time or co-writing or, but I would say, well, he's using the Marvel method and there was not that expectation of sophistication that there is today. Um, Today you look at, you know, I saw somebody post something on Twitter a while back um, where they were showing like a classic version of like a Superman boot, you know, where there's not a whole lot of rendering going on. And then they show like a Frank Quietly boot where it's got the laces and it's got the heels and the insane level of detail. Um, I think that's in, sy- systemic for the whole industry uh, and for every single component of the industry. Um, no matter what innovations we have to kind of make things a little faster, like, you know, digital coloring or digital lettering. Um the expectation of sophistication automatically blows all that away. Um, and the fact that oftentimes we are expected to either not just hit a monthly anymore, but you, you see at the big two, they're double shipping. Um, so I think comics creators, I often say are kind of the hardiest um, creatives in, in the business because they are expected to turn things around on such a swift deadline. Um I will say that's my favorite part about being in the indies is that compared to say something like a movie, you're still well ahead of the curve, but you're not putting yourself in that kind of punishing rat race of the big two. Not to say that like, you know, if the big two came calling, of course I would answer the call, but I don't want to be that guy who thinks he can run before walk. And so with that, in that in mind, I don't mind taking my time. Um, you know, I'm still working on Spencer and Lock Volume 3, for example. Um, I would much rather the work get done right than get done fast. Um, and that's, I think, a kind of patience that I don't think most other industries allow. Um, yeah, so yeah I don't know if I actually answered your question. But uh, <laughs> there's an answer. No, I, I, you know, I, I kind of, I heard someone else 
um, use this, and I've I've since stolen it as my own. But uh, I, I kind of take it as in my writing career as as baseball, right? Like right now, I'm playing in single A or double A, yes. right? Because yes. I'm I'm doing self publishing or, or a small publisher, and you're slowly working your way up to get to the show, right? And you don't want you don't want to be called up before you're ready, strike out, and then you you're, you're never seen again, right? Yes. And so you know, it's funny. It's funny you say that. I, 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 because my editor on Scouts Honor is the one that introduced me to that concept. Um, I, my first break in the comics industry was uh, I interned at DC Comics in uh, summer of 2008. So uh, that was the summer that Final Crisis and Batman R.I.P. came out. And I, that was where I first met Mike Martz, who was then the editor of the Batman line. Um, had previously been the X-Men editor over um, at Marvel, is now uh, uh, the editor over at Aftershock. Um, And Mike, the comics industry is so fast-paced that sometimes people kind of fall through the cracks. And sometimes people, especially if there's sort of a hard truth that you got to give somebody. In my case, the hard truth was the recession was here and there were no jobs. And I remember... I went from, this was sort of the most exciting internship opportunity I could have ever asked for. I spent three years knocking on that door to get in um, to sort of this feeling of, oh, I've, I, I got this far and I'm sort of petering out at the finish line. Like there's no jobs. And Mike was said exactly the same thing you did, which he said, nobody walks into the Yankees. Um, you got to start, you know, you play in the Indies, you play in the farm teams. And then as you develop your skill, you make your way to the majors and um, that has always stuck with me and i think that's i i that's part of the reason why scouts honor i think is an important book for me is because it feels like that promise fulfilled a little bit um it's been over 10 years since mike gave me that advice but i think without that advice i would not be in the comics industry i would have given up Um, i would have said oh if it's all or nothing and that's couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, it's one thing if you've got like, I don't know if you're a successful novelist or a successful TV or film creator, then yeah, I guess you can walk your way into Marvel or DC. But um, that honestly, at that point, that feels a lot harder uh, uh, than doing comics is, is breaking into film or television. So I think, you know, you got to, it's like Shawshank in, in reverse. You got to chisel your way in like one spoon at a time. And, you got to be patient with yourself. I mean, and also you got to give yourself the widest possible landing zone. I mean, if your life goal is just to write Batman or just to write Spider-Man, you are probably going to give yourself some disappointment. Um, there are more NBA players than are, are than there are Spider-Man writers. Um, that's a really, good, I, that's a really good way to look at it. Right. Like, you know, there's, you know, there's like 32 NFL teams. Right. But there's yeah. maybe, three spider-man writers like look at the yeah, odds on that they, you know i mean it's 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 one of those things i'd have to run the numbers but there's that there there are probably around as many astronauts as there have been spider-man writers um and so you know like maybe just say you know if your goal is to write superheroes professionally it's it's still a, a, a hard thing to hit but that's something that maybe you can hit. Like, you know, if you give yourself some time and you really like work your ass off for it, 
but even then it's just like honestly the for me anyway the more that i have written comics i've realized that the goal is just to write more comics um i like doing my own thing i like calling my own shots um i find that my work is often better as a result um because when you work in licensed projects there are other directives you have to accomplish and there are other hoops you have to jump through. And I always consider it a miracle that anything comes out, you know, uh, under that kind of very tight time frame and tight pressure. And um, it's not to say there isn't a place for it. There is a place for it, but I think the only way that you can get good enough to kind of be to, to, to maneuver the way you need to maneuver is if you kind of, learn how to do your own work first yeah yeah i I completely agree i um i i wouldn't know what to do with spider-man or batman with the creative (laughs) restraint like like in i mean that in all seriousness like it would be it would be wonderful that you know um an editor picked up one of my books and they're like this guy is the next guy who's gonna write and then insert big two guy um right um I, I know, and, and that'd be great. And I, I, like you said, I'd, I'd answer the call, but I, I still, I still really like doing my own thing. Like you said, um, and I, and I yeah. still like, I still like growing and learning and, and, you know, not saying that I couldn't do that in the big two, but it's really, it's really fulfilling to do your own thing. And then people respond to it the way that they, right. you know, um, the, the way they have for me and they have for you with like the OZ. And so that kind of leads me to my next question. What was it like running your first Kickstarter? And then, ha- and then now you're in the fulfillment stage and all that stuff. So like, uh, give me your, 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 you know, your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, boy, it was unbelievable. I mean, really is the, the only word I can use to describe it. Um, the way that I wound up coming about doing my first Kickstarter, um, it was a long, long time coming. Um, I, I had been thinking about doing a Kickstarter for the better part of a year, if not longer. Um, I, a lot of my friends in the Los Angeles comic scene have had success with Kickstarters. Uh, Charlie Stickney, Rylan Grant, Dave Schrader, Carla Nappi, um, you know, uh, Russell and uh, just to name a few Pat Shan, just to name a half dozen <laughs> um, uh, and Kat Kalamia. Um, you know, they had all, been saying you should really think about doing a kickstarter you should really think about doing a kickstarter and at first i i certainly had some trepidations about it you know um because i had had a pretty good thing going with the direct market um and working with action lab and being able to just get all my stuff out in stores but um it was charlie that really kind of tipped me over the net he's he and it was because the way he explained it to me he says you know you you're good at you know, knocking on doors in the direct market. And at the time I was doing a, a lot of cons every year. He's like, you've been hitting the con circuit really hard. Your books are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Comixology. Um, those are three distinct audiences and there's some overlap, but you know, for the most part, there's, it's, it's pretty distinct. And um, he goes, you know, what about the crowdfunding market? That's an entirely different demographic that you have done thus far, no outreach to. Um, and I realized like, oh yeah, like that's a whole different market. I, I really need to do something. And the OZ, meanwhile, I had, um, I had been pitching that for a long time. Um, there was a, a, a big name publisher who had originally asked me to develop it. 
um, uh, on the heels of Spencer and Locke, I had given him that log line uh, amongst several. And that editor was like, I really like this Wizard of Oz thing. Like, you should really flesh that out. And I really fell in love with it as the outline came together. And the OZ, for those who don't know what it is, it's, um, it's kind of like the Hurt Locker meets the Wizard of Oz. It's, um, it's the story of Dorothy Gale's granddaughter, who's an Iraq war veteran, who gets swept up and stranded in the war-torn land of Oz. And she finds out that, it's, that because her grandmother killed the Wicked Witch of the West and then split, the ensuing power vacuum turned Oz into something not unlike Baghdad. And so she's going to have to nav. She has to navigate the various factions um, from of her grandmother's former friends in order to bring peace to the occupied zone, or as the locals call it, the OZ. Um, I that book obviously did not get picked up by the publisher who had initially asked me to develop it. We, without naming names, we went head to head with another fantasy series that was a little similar in tone but by a much more established writer um, and creative team. And I, I I don't blame them one bit for not picking up both books. But what the editor did that was really nice that he did not have to do was he said, don't give up on this project. Like it's, this is, this is the goods. So that kind of really made me stubborn enough to find a creative team for it. Uh, Ruben Rojas, Whitney Kogar, uh, DC Hopkins. And um, we pitched it to a number of publishers all of whom expressed interest, but all of whom kind of dragged their heels a bit. Um, and that's, I don't think that's emblematic of the concept. Um, I think it's just the comics industry is a little ADD. Things happen, uh, priorities shift, um, you know, with COVID especially, you know, the whole industry shut down. Um, and so it's just out of sight, out of mind, you know. Um, and, and so finally I realized I could just kind of solve one problem with another. Um, I was like, I want to do a Kickstarter. I want a home for the OZ. The OZ is some of my best work. Let's go to Kickstarter with my A game. And um, yeah, it was um, very unbelievable. <laughs> you know, you go into this with a certain set of expectations and then you find out how quickly your expectations are completely wrong. Um a lot of my friends had told me, aim low with your, with your goal. Um, like, what's the lowest goal you can do and not feel like you totally wasted your time? And so I felt, you know, I'll put down a, a $6,000 goal. Um, you know, it'll cover uh, most of my print costs, you know. Um, it'll cover, uh, in theory, uh, a, a chunk of shipping, you know. Um, as of our conversation, um, and with our Kickstarter funds and our backer kit funds, we are just about at $50,000 for that book. I, that's amazing. That's amazing, um, man. I, I, you know, if you had told me at the beginning of August that that would be the case, I would lie. I would say you're a liar. Like you're, you just don't know what you're talking about. Um, but I think it, it's because of the creative team. You know, I I've always said, I, I want to work with people whose work is so unimpeachably good that like, no one cares what I wrote. It's very freeing for me as a creator. Um, certainly takes a lot of the pressure off. And um, I think Ruben and Whitney and Dave Hopkins, they are, they are the real deal. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, you know, for me, <laughs> just when we got funded in two hours instead of 30 days, 
then it became just a kind of a scramble figuring out, Oh, I got to learn this whole new sport on the fly. And it's got its own totally different laws of physics compared to the direct market. Um, for example, my Kickstarter launched the same day as Scott Snyder's, uh, the writer of Batman, who he did not do any sort of publicity roll-up leading to this. He just beyonce the thing and just dropped it day of. Um, in the direct market, that would have been a kill shot for my book. Um, but in Kickstarter, it was like I was a surfer riding like the big kahuna. Like it was just, you know... It, there was a, a really powerful wind at our backs because Kickstarter as a business model, they want to keep you in the Kickstarter ecosystem. Um, they want as many projects as possible to fund. And so anybody who's back to Kickstarter, for example, if you check out, you know, any update, you know, you'll see ads for, I think four different Kickstarter projects. So we were really lucky in that, you know, so many people who are fans of Scott's work on Batman um, and justice league and the like, um, an American vampire, they backed his book and then immediately they were like, Oh, Hey, there's this book called the OZ. Let's see how it goes. Um, so yeah, we wound up getting, um, 1,254 backers. Um, and I am currently in the process of, yes, of, uh, fulfilling all of that. Now we are, um, I think we're about two thirds of the way, maybe a little less, two thirds of the way done with fulfillment. Um, the, 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 the added complication is that we just got a puppy in the middle of all of it. Um, so my, my books arrived on a Wednesday and we picked up the puppy on the following Saturday. Um, so it's just a lot of, you know, I've been doing a lot of bagging and boarding, a lot of uh, uh, Gemini mailers um, while trying not to freak out this uh, 12 week old puppy um, to varying degrees of success. It's um, it's a lot. And you find, you know, with every Kickstarter, I feel very fortunate with how ours went. And I feel like for the most part, structurally, everything was pretty sound. But there are little bits and pieces here that I would fix for the next time, for sure. Um, you know, things like I will never do just one tier for a variant cover again. Um, I will do each variant cover as its own separate tier because... Uh, what a pain uh, to chase people to fill out their backer kit surveys. Uh, whereas, you know, now if I did it the other way, I would just know this is what I have to back and I just need to wait for their shipping info. Um, but yeah, figuring out things like, you know, what can I add to the mix um, that to keep people interested? Um, you know, things like we did um, some enhanced covers uh, for our main cover, we added uh, UV raised coating for some of the figures. So if you look at it in the in the in the in the glare, you can kind of see the characters pop a little bit more. Um, I did a behind the scenes commentary. Did we? Uh, I commissioned my friend George to do a theme song uh, for 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 it. You know, stickers, pins, um, prints. It's um, it's a real challenge. You know, uh, uh, figuring out what else can you add to the mix that doesn't blow up your printing and shipping costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was kind of a fun challenge uh, to, 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 to go for. Um, because I have seen Kickstarters who have promised the world and not realizing like it's going to slow down their production time. It's going to just kill their, their shipping infrastructure. Um you know, they won't be able to fit it in a Gemini mailer anymore. They won't be able to fit it in a flat rate envelope anymore or a flat rate box. What are you going to do? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it was the best kind of learning curve. 
I do think, uh, I, I mean, I, I've, I've already said I'm committed to keeping VOZ on Kickstarter. Um, you know, if we get a second life at a publisher, that's great, but we, that's not the case at the moment. I mean, right now the Kickstarter backers are the ones that, that showed up to the table and in a big way. And so they're the ones that I, I want to commit to, but I do think that just as a creator, it's incumbent on all of us to really kind of try to bring together these various diasporas, you know, of the direct market crowd and the Kickstarter crowd and the convention crowd and the webtoons and the Amazon crowd, and just kind of try to bring them all to the same table. Um, Because ultimately this fracturing it's if left unchanneled, it can hurt the industry. But if it's something that we kind of lean into and embrace and just make it as holistic as possible, this is something that can really keep the industry going for a very long time. Um, You know, the audiences are there. It's just being creative and persistent about doing the outreach for them. Yeah, that, I mean, that's such a a great way to um, not only, you know, have your first Kickstarter, just do gangbusters, but also a great way to, uh, to, to look at it was uh the guy who did your um your theme song was that george o'connor uh george marston oh um, different george and yeah <laughs> different different george um but yeah no um you know uh he's my best friend uh you know we came up in the trenches together at newsarama and um you know he's sort of i, I consider him kind of the, the the lead member of my my creative brain trust but um yeah you know he's he's a musician um and it was one of, it's funny he and i both kind of independently um I was thinking about different rewards and I, I had thought, Oh, this is probably super self-indulgent, but I was like, you know, you're a musician. Like, would you ever want to do a theme song? And he was like, you know, I was kind of hoping you were going to ask because I just wrote some lyrics this, this afternoon. And so, awesome. um, it, yeah, it was like, it was, it was really kind of, you know, our, our, our brain wavelengths were on the, on the same wavelength that day. And um, yeah, he really crushed it. Um, I think he did a terrific job and, uh yeah i'm excited to kind of figure out what sorts of surprises we can add into the mix next kickstarter uh i will say that i've got one item that we've commissioned that is super cool um that i am trying to just figure out we'll probably add it as some sort of tier but it's just something that i wish we had time to do it for the first kickstarter just things kind of happened so fast that we didn't have time for it but um it's a cool item that i think a lot of the oz's fans are really gonna dig yeah i uh as someone who backed the project and um i i was just i, I was really impressed with the way you you handled the entire campaign as someone who does kickstarter you. you know myself it was it was really it, you ran a really really great campaign and then uh you know now reading the oz man there were like some really cool things that you did with the mythos that i i won't spoil but um I can't even say the characters because as soon as I say them, it automatically spoils them. But you, uh, mm-hmm. you did some really cool things. I'll talk to you off air about it. But you did some really yeah. cool things um, <laughs> with some really beloved characters and and turned them into and twisted them into different ways that um, I don't think anyone reading it would have seen it. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, what was it like, kind of messing around with that? Because I, as someone who, yeah. who who's a writer himself, I I could feel how much fun you were having. Like it was like, it it felt like you were having a lot of fun and you're like, let's see what we could do. Like, let's, let's push this. Let's let's turn this to 11. 
it, you know, it was, it, th- that was a concept. So the OZ, it's funny. I, when I pitched this to the initial editors that I was working with, the OZ was at the bottom of like 12 log lines. I think I had sent two emails, in fact, and the OZ was at the bottom of the second email. Um, you know, just because I had said, well, I had just done that with Spencer and Locke. I don't know how much I want to do it again. And um, I'm so glad that editor picked that one because as I sort of delved into that book um, and really fleshed out Dorothy and, and, and the various characters, I was just like, oh, this is so fun. This is super fun because, um, yeah, it's it, nobody ever thinks of like this like action-packed combat scene, you know, with the Wizard of Oz. That's, you, you think of sort of this homespun, very like innocent bit of magic you know um it's very wholesome and the oz it's i mean it's certainly um you know it's it's a it's a darker book um i don't think it's surprisingly i don't think it's as dark as spencer and Locke, but i do think like you know it's it's certainly a dark book and it's certainly um but yeah it's it's just i had so much fun playing around with it and i think then working with ruin uh, Ruben is just uh, he's a one in a million artist um, he I, I usually have a lot of thoughts for my artists in the thumbnail stage um, they probably all want to kill me until the book comes out and then they realize like oh okay like I see what he's doing now um, Ruben I very rarely have to give notes to um, he is just he, he's he's an artist who knows his best angles and uh, I adore working with him um, you know every page he, he turns out is just incredible um you know he does his own covers he even does his own colors for those covers which is just amazing um so yeah i uh seeing the way that ruben realized everything that's the thing that really kind of got me like even more excited about the project i had written the first issue and i'd written the full outline before i approached ruben just to kind of let him know like hey i i I know what i'm doing like i know where this is going i don't want to like jerk you around you know for a script that you don't know where it's headed um, but seeing his initial pitch pages, I remember telling him immediately, I will pay you for the rest of this book. Like, let's just do this book. Um, you're, you, you are the real deal. I don't want to do this book with anybody else. So um, it's really fun. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I do think that the book has evolved a lot um, since I first came up with it. Um, I wrote it, that outline concurrently with Spencer and Locke too which um, that book I did Calvin and Hobbes versus Beetle Bailey. So I had kind of like a homicidal soldier as the villain of one book while I was developing a, a book about sort of a heroic soldier. And it was sort of my, maybe my mea culpa in a way. Um, I'm very proud of Spencer and Locke too. And like, I feel like having a soldier with PTSD as the villain feels organic to the concept that we've already established. But you know, like I, I wanted to to write something with a soldier in heroic light, you know, after that. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, it has wound up being really fun finding different angles to the Oz mythos that you might not have seen in the Judy Garland film. Um, you know, if you felt like the, the, the Judy Garland film was a little two dimensional, even though I feel like the archetypes are all there and the character arcs are very iconic and apparent. Um, there's lots of different ways that you can find new meaning. And um, I, I feel, I felt the same way about Spencer and Locke, um, you know, just kind of taking these 
the imagery that we're all used to and kind of hitting it from a different angle. People seem to really like that. You know, it's sort of, it helps you kind of capture that familiar, but different thing that we're always chasing as creators. Um, Something that like can gain some purchase in a reader's mind, but in a way that still kind of catches them off guard. Um, But yeah, I, I, the OZ feels like a really special book to me. Um, It, it's got the kind of magic to it that I felt with Spencer and Locke. And I don't think it's because of the dark twist in a childhood, whatever. Um, I think it's just the characters feel there and the execution feels there. And um, yeah, I've really just enjoyed every step of it. And um, I will say I, the OZ for me also feels like a little bit of growth for me as a writer. Um, you know, I'm able to play with the scale a little bit more. I'm able to play with, with the fantasy elements that, you know, this is my, this is my first time doing anything like that. Um, and I think, uh, there are twists in that book. I think, I, I think there's a lot of twists in it and I'm very proud of those. Um, and, uh, I've heard, I've heard from some of our digital readers already and they are like tearing their hair out being so excited with some of those twists and so um ultimately that's kind of my thing like is that i every book i do i don't care if it's bigger in terms of numbers that's not really my thing but i feel like if there is something that i can improve at in each book then i've done my job and that feels like a worthwhile book to me if it just feels like more of the same or if it feels like i've tried something different but it didn't really connect well, those are two separate things. If it's more of the same, it's not worth it. Even if I've tried something different, it doesn't connect. I can at least say I tried, um, but I, I'm trying really hard not to rest on my laurels. And that's why I keep trying to do different stuff with every project. Um, if not in terms of genre, then at least in terms of execution. Um, it keeps me from getting bored, but I think it also keeps me from getting stagnant. Um, I think, you know, if you're not constantly moving as a writer, you're, you're like a shark, you're going to die. And so um, in some capacity, I always want to try to keep on moving. You know, that I love that you said that you want to keep challenging yourself because, you know, all of your books, like there's a, there's a through line kind of with like kind of tone and theme, like I said at the beginning that I could definitely see they're your book. And there's like those humor moments. I could definitely tell it's like a, a David Pepos book, but they're, they're wildly different as far as like genre, right? Like you got like the crime genre, then you got this like, well, crime, romance. crime, romance. So I guess it's like a crime adjacent. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, yeah. and then you have the OZ, which is this like war fantasy. Um, and then Scout's Honor. Um I, I, what, what I find interesting is that uh, I, I had a, a literary manager r- right right away that just wanted me to be like, he, he was like, you need to be a surgeon, like find your knit. This was like his advice mm-hmm. to me. And I fought him tooth and nail with this. Um, and I don't know if it was good or bad. Yeah. Um, and and I, I what's what's funny is I ended up doing his advice after like I fought him. But yeah. like uh, he was like, you need to find your niche and be a surgeon, like be the guy and be the guy who's the horror guy or the guy who's this. And his example is always like, you know, Adam Sandler was a comedian first and really right. honed that in and mastered that. And then he went, then was able to do everything else. It's like, that's what you need to do is really hone this in. 
And I see you're you're doing almost the opposite. You call it the shotgun approach. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. No, no. Because like I was always like, well, I want to do, like you said, I want to do my romantic comedy. I want to do my fantasy. I want to do this. And, um, you know, what's it's, interesting is now that, you know, I'm kind of doing my own thing now. I'm doing, I'm doing exactly what he told. I'm doing all this horror stuff, which is like totally organic and I didn't mean to do. But I, I just think it's really interesting that you, you took like the, a, a different approach. It's funny. My, my, my reps have recommended similar for like, it's, it's interesting because I feel like if film and television is like in that regard, a very different animal than the comics industry. Um, the comics industry, I think is a little bit of the wild west where you're still able to kind of shotgun around a little bit. Um, whereas yeah, like film and television, you really got to kind of figure out what's your niche, you know? Um, my, my reps keep describing my work as a, a little bit of grit, a little bit of wit, which is nice of them to say. Um, but yeah, it's like the comics industry for me, I, I have for the most part been able to stay on my roadmap of daisy chaining, like, I feel like Spencer and Locke was a really good starting point because it's crime, but there's a little bit of fantastical elements to it. So it lends itself well to, you know, you can say, Oh, even though going to the chapel feels very different than Spencer and Locke, you can see how I got to that point. And you can see how I got to the OZ from something like Spencer and Locke. And even my, my book, Grand Theft Astro, um, my upcoming sci-fi book, which I, I had wished had been out by now, but just based on the timing with my artist, he's sort of starting to turn through pages now. Um, I, uh, that's the sort of, uh, stuff that I, I've been, uh, you know, you can see how you get to the through line from there. Um, but yeah, I like, I feel like comics, like in certain ways, I think showing that versatility kind of shows the kinds of work you can get down the line. Um, you know, I think your voice is something that translates. Um, and that I think translates from book to book to book. Um, there are certain themes and, and, and character traits that I think stand out from book to book to book, even if you don't mean it, it's just, that's, that's your voice. Um, and I think for me, the thing that gave me permission for that was, um, was actually the conversation that made me decide maybe I'd start writing. Um, which is, uh, I remember I visited my dad, um, uh, I visited my dad as probably six years ago. And I remember I was working a corporate job at uh, CBS in New York. Um, I wasn't particularly in love with it, but it was just, that was the job I had. And, um, I remember my dad asking me like, you know, how's work? And I was just like, oh, it's, it's work, you know? Um, and my dad, my dad said, you know, what's the one thing that only you can do? And it really kind of hit me that I was like, well, it's, I'm not the only person in the world who can write, obviously, but I'm the only person who can write the way that I write. And that has really kind of sustained me through a lot is, you know, yeah, there are certain creators who I consider influences. And I think I, I do a, a decent job synthesizing all those different influences, but um, nobody no matter what concept I do, nobody's going to write it the same way that I write it. Um, and so that has been really helpful for me. Um, and that I think has made it, especially, you know, I feel like I've been very fortunate with my fan base. 
Um, you know, we're, 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 we're small, but mighty. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, Action Lab is not the biggest publisher in the world. Um, and that said, I think the Spencer and Locke contingent came out heavy for the OZ. And I feel like the OZ contingent is going to go hard on whatever I do next. Um, and that I think has been really encouraging. Um, and I know there was a point for me bringing that up and I don't remember what it is now. Um, but, uh, oh, I think I, it was, it was saying in the comics industry, I think because there's that sort of connection to the, to the authors a little bit more, you can, the readers can sense what's a David Pepos book and they can hear that concept and immediately based on what they know of previous work, be like, Oh, that tracks. And they can even, now they're getting to the point where they can sort of start to expect like, what's the kind of vibe we're going to get here. Um, There's probably going to be weird best friend dynamics in there or weird partners. Uh, There's probably going to be like a balance of like action and comedy and really sad moments and probably some improvised weapons. Um, and, you know, like a, 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 a trash sculpture of a high concept that I'm going to wind up crying about. Um, and that's not bad. Um, I'll take that. Uh, so, yeah, I think the comics industry, I think because you know who all the creators are, you know, you start to learn. Uh, you don't know who, like, the screenwriter of your favorite movie is nine times out of ten. Whereas the comics industry, you know who's the writer hopefully you'll know who the artist is and you can kind of extrapolate based on that what how they might tackle any sort of specific genre yeah and you know i i love that you made the distinction that like that surgeon type of you know focus with your writing is definitely more of a television feature thing because like the end game for a lot of a lot of reps is to get you on a show right get you as a staff writer and so if you have you know 10 you know rom-coms you you, they could they could you know have you write for you know whatever right what 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 is it the the new girl or whatever the the new show is at the time like it's easier to pitch you than if you have like well here's his horror thing maybe you want him whereas i think right yeah Uh, well it's also you know you know like la for a store for for a town that's built on stories i say this with love and affection but Hollywood is also like comprised of some of the single worst readers on the planet because like, they just don't have time. Like they're inundated. And so they will do literally whatever it takes to streamline things, whether that's having their assistants write them summaries of the scripts, you know, and basically outsource their decision-making to, you know, telling all the writers, you need to do one thing and you need to do one thing really well. So that way we can put you on a show that does that one thing really well. Nobody has the bandwidth to really think about it. Um, I think the advantage that I have, if you want to call it an advantage, um, you know, it's just, look, I, I'm, I'm, I've seen myself in a mirror. I'm a straight white guy. Um, you know, uh, I'm Jewish, but that doesn't really help me here in Hollywood. Um, it's so my, my reps, I think have mercifully been like, look, man, like focus on your books. Like when, you know, if and when your stuff gets sold, we can use that to kind of crack you through to the next level. Because, and you can sort of tell me if your experience has been any different, but the way that I have been told, and this was working at a management company when I first moved out here, 
is that the really insidious thing about Hollywood right now is that there has been a push for representation and diverse writers, but because the studios are paying for it and sort of saying, okay, every show we are going to give X amount of money for diverse writers, the showrunners say, okay, those will be all of our entry-level staff writers. And so it's doubly insidious because all the, 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 the writers who are diverse get stuck in staff writer positions. They are not hired for anything higher, or it, it takes, I shouldn't say, that, it takes them 10 times as much work to get up the next rung of the ladder because they're like, well, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll just pay these guys the, 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 the bare bones rate. And, you know, meanwhile, like anybody, anybody else trying to get into the staff writer level, you can't get in. Um, and so it's sort of a one, two punch. So for me, I think that's, it's freed me a little bit. I, I, I get exactly where reps would say, be a surgeon, do the one thing, do the one thing. Well, um, however, there's no upside in it for me. <laughs> um, so I just, I, you know, as, as I, because I consider myself a comics guy first and foremost, um, I'm just like, well, I'm just going to be able to shotgun as much, as much as I can. My feeling is more of, I, my goal is I want to have something for everyone eventually there are some people who were not huge fans of spencer and Locke, and i get it like you know i i think the vast majority of people really dug it but you know like nothing's universal but the people who might not be interested in spencer and Locke saw chapel and said oh huh that's interesting okay this guy's got some 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 levels some layers and uh those people really liked it. And then those people were more, much more likely to give the OZ a shot. So, you know, like I'm working on a, my first horror book right now. And um, my thought is, you know, anybody who has read my books will probably like my take on horror, but somebody who for whatever reason doesn't want to give any of my books a shot, but they like horror, that might be the thing to get my foot in the door and then sort of keep them going, uh, you know, keep them coming back. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of the big differences i think between comics and film um but i think it's one reason that i like comics so much is that i don't have to get bored in any one genre i can just kind of keep harping on the different themes that speak to me but kind of keep viewing them through a variety of different lenses yeah that's that's really well said and i love that you brought up um uh you're going to be doing a horror series now um was that something that you had in the pipeline because i know you did um you were part of nightmare theater um yeah and and, which i was a part of as well um (laughs) yeah and uh i I remember clay i was listening to um a podcast uh clay adams the guy who put it together yeah and i I think he i don't want to butcher his the story but um i remember him saying something along the lines of like he approached you to do this and you're like i don't i have no story and then all of a sudden you you have this really awesome like power ranger another like really cool yeah uh power rangers versus the walking dead yeah um uh which again i thought was really awesome and uh you know what was it kind of like um working on that short story and then that spawn the horror story that you're going to write or was that always just in the back burner somewhere so every time i work in a so okay the first to go back a little bit spencer and Locke, i knew that that was going to be a risky book from like the jump because 
Calvin and Hobbes is beloved. Uh, Bill Watterson's a pioneer and a trailblazer and an innovator. And like, he is well-earned his acclaim. Um, it is like the most sacred cow that I was turning into hamburger. I did not know if people were going to like that book. So that was my bucket list book. I threw in literally everything cool that I could think of. If I said I only did one book, I wanted to make sure that I did all the stuff I wanted to do. Had a car chase, had some sci-fi in it, had some like psychological thriller elements to it, um, had some cool like fist fights. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure that if I only had one book, that would be it. Also to give uh, my artist, George Santiago Jr., like a good portfolio in case like he was attached to this like book that everyone hated. Um, thankfully, people really liked that book. Um, but I found that my bucket list kept growing. Every time I checked something off, I would wind up inevitably adding something new to the list, either in reaction to the thing I just wrote or if I saw something cool elsewhere that I kind of wanted to emulate. Um, and so, you know, for example, going to the chapel, um, Spencer and Locke was a pretty tight, intimate cast, small cast. And so I said, the next thing I want to write, I want a big sprawling cast. I think we had like 15 or 16 speaking roles in it. Um, we had a big, uh, internal running monologue in Spencer and Locke. So I did not do any captions in going to the chapel, um, because it can be a crutch to use. Um, Spencer and Locke for reasons of I wanted to try to avoid any sort of unintentional negative stereotyping was its first volume was not particularly diverse. Um, so I wanted to make sure, you know, going to the chapel had, you know, female lead and two men of color as the romantic interests. So um, those sorts of elements, they keep building for every single story. So I, I have thought for a little while now, Hey, there's a horror idea that I had in mind that I, I wanted to try out. Um, and I'm in the middle of scripting it. I, I kind of had to put it in the back burner because of the Kickstarter and the puppy. But as soon as the Kickstarter is done, I will be diving right back into my, into the first issue script. But um, so for nightmare theater, uh, my story was called uh, die, die danger Ronan. Um, and it, that story came um, I, I'm, I'm buddies with uh, Dave Schrader and Clay Adams. Um, uh, Clay was a super wonderful resource for uh, my own Kickstarter. Um, so he's a real sweetheart. I like him a lot. Um, they approached me. I'm trying to remember, you know, time has shifted so much during this pandemic, but I want to say it was fairly early in the pandemic, if not pre pandemic, um, saying, Hey, we are going to be doing a horror anthology and would you be interested? And at first I was like, I don't know. I mean, I had a lot going on at the moment. Um, our previous dog was dying. Um, she, she had cancer and she was kind of in the end stages of her, of, of, uh, of that. Um, and going to the chapel was coming out and we had some delays on, on the distribution side with all of that and dealing with some multimedia stuff and dealing with um, uh, scouts honor. We were just starting to uh, get contracts signed for that. Um, and getting the OZ at the door, I was kind of, I was feeling a little tapped out bandwidth wise and uh, you know pandemic struck shut everything down and i think for me that was a i feel guilty saying it was a good recalibration for me because obviously there was a huge human cost you know behind everything but i think when the diamond when diamond had its temporary shut down i think felt there's a constant rat race narrative going on in the industry where 
I think it's very easy, you know, to hear all everybody else's announcements and be like, well, why don't I have announcements? Um, the diamond shutdown hit pause on that. It was good for me uh, in that regard. And so I thought a little bit more about like, well, you know, Dave and Clay are friends. You know, I'd obviously like to help them out if I can. I'd like to, you know, they're inviting me to kind of do something. And the thing that really hooked me was when they were like, look, we want it to riff on film and television. And, um, you know, you go back to that idea of the bucket list, right? Um, I was thinking I, I had written two anthology stories before, um, which hopefully will be announced relatively soon. Um, and for me, what I consider the benefit of anthology stories, there are some people who say anthology stories are a great way to get started in the industry. I disagree. And I'll explain why. Um, I think they are good supplemental materials to full length stories. Um, if you want to get work on a licensed book, you know, or a licensed series, oftentimes you start on backups. So being able to say, Hey, I, this is what I can do in eight pages or four pages or 12 pages or whatever you want to say. Um, that is good. I do think editors at licensed companies though want to see what you have done that is full length. I think it's hard to just say I've done a bunch of shorts and that's it. Um, I had said to myself, what are some of the things that I want to do in licensed books? And I had, for me, I, you know, um, the two things that I desperately want to do in, in licensed comics are superheroes and Archie horror. Those are the two things. Uh, poor Alex Segura over at Archie. I email him quarterly um, at, just to be like anything, anything. I owe him an email actually. <laughs> um, and so at the time, you know, Dave and Clay had hit me up and I was like, I don't know. Like I, I feel a little burnt out. I don't know if I have time. And then I was like, wait a minute. They're telling me I can do whatever I want. What's just like as a writing sample for the things that I want to do, what can I throw together to kind of hit some of those general things? So I was like teenage horror superheroes. What does that look like? And um, as I was kind of thinking, well, teenage superheroes, Power Rangers came up very quickly and then I was like, what's a horror version of Power Rangers? And I kind of took the Marvel Zombies deceased approach where I was just like, all right, what's the last Power Ranger against a zombie apocalypse? And I feel like it kind of brought me a little bit full circle. Um, there was a, a, a short movie that uh, is still online. Um, a short They did a Power Rangers fan film starring James Vanderbeek. And... Um, uh, uh, the director's name, I just want to make sure I have it correct. Um, let's see. I'm just looking it up. Yes. Joseph Kahn. Um, and uh, what's funny is I, I guess I can reveal this because it's not like state secrets or anything. We had actually approached him at one point as a possible director for Spencer and Locke, which was kind of a cool little thing. But I remember seeing that short for Power Rangers, this kind of dystopian future version of the Power Rangers. And it really left a big mark on me, um, you know, stuff like that or uh, Afterlife with Archie. And so, um, but I was like, oh yeah, like the Power Rangers, there's a lot to them. That's like a little sinister, you know, like 
Joseph Kahn's thing was about like they were kind of child soldiers, you know? Like, why would Zordon pick these teenagers with attitude to do his bidding? Maybe it's because their their minds are not developed enough to tell him no, or to like see through some of the inconsistencies. Um, for Danger Ronin, it was just you know taking this step of you know these teenagers who are so used to winning. Well, what's something that can what's something that can beat them, and it's themselves. And so the idea of having like a zombie Power Ranger you know, uh, and sort of watching all these Rangers get killed. Um, that was a fun way to spend eight pages, you know? Um, and I, I was really, I was really fortunate. Um, uh, I, I had been watching uh, Erica DeUrso's work for a long time and I was just, I didn't have the right project for her at any particular time. And thankfully I hit her at a moment where her schedule had a break in it. And uh, she and, and her partner, uh, her boyfriend, are both very into Power Rangers. So uh, she immediately was like, yes, I want to do this. Um, and she recommended uh, Roche, our colorist, um, who uh, they had worked together on James Bond uh, previously. And the two of them together, like just they both immediately saw the script and were like, hell yes. Um, they, they were so enthusiastic about it. And uh, I, I was very excited by uh, how that uh, short turned out. Um, it just goes to show there comes a point if you're really lucky in your career, like you have to start kind of asking yourself, what jobs do I want to take and which jobs should I not take? Uh, whether it's a, a question of bandwidth or reputation or just not aligning with what your personal goals are or your values. Um, this was a case of finding a gig and just like finding something to love about it if you can find something to love about the job and it, and it aligns with your goals and you aren't going to kill yourself making it, you should do it. Um, you know, like why not? Um, I have had to turn down work um, just because either it didn't align with the, the goals I had set or it didn't align with the values that I have as a creator. Didn't plan on the time or bandwidth to do it. But that is a project that I'm really glad that um, Dave and Clay kind of kept on me about um, because, yeah, I, it wound up being one of the most fun projects I did all year. Um, and yeah, and I, I will say having, you know, read the anthology, and you, you, you've read the anthology as well. I, I was pleasantly pleased with uh, how many good stories were in that anthology. I mean, you know, not... I think that's the other reason why I'm a little like I, 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 I'm a little down on anthologies is that sometimes like the hit to miss ratio gets a little depressing. Um, this I think is pound for pound. One of the most consistent uh, uh, anthologies I've read. And uh, yeah, I just feel really fortunate to be standing in such good company and, and, and so fortunate to be teaming up with the kinds of artists and co-creators that I team up with um, because ultimately like when you have the right artist and colorist on board um, it really, it, it makes any concept a home run. Yeah. And uh, what I, I, you know, I read through the anthology and uh, one of my favorite scenes in yours, um, mm-hmm. I, I'll try not to ruin it. So I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be brief about it, but it's, yeah. uh, it's with an ax and it's like three panels mm-hmm. Yep. Like that just it those three panels and like how it's 
how they, you know, how they flow with the narrative and what's going on. Like it's, it's really hard sometimes. Um, like you said uh, earlier, comics is really cool that there's these restrictions on them. Yeah. Right. And there's even more restrictions when you have only eight pages or four pages to tell yes. the story. Yes. And a lot of times um, when you're, when you're going through an anthology, there's a lot of misses because there's, you don't have any development of things. It's like things right. happen, but you don't have any characters. And just in those three panels, like I, I really, any, any writer out there who's listening to this and they're thinking about writing and they want to get better. There's three panels in there with, with one of, with one of David's characters with an ax watch the look at those three panels and that like really like the characterization that you get in those three panels is like so huge like it's really really well done and like as i was reading through i was like oh yeah this is this is really good stuff here like thank you and it 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 was so perfect for the tone and again it kind of kind of fits with that through line right like there's some there's some darkness in there that she was releasing you know it's funny i i know exactly which thing you're talking about and um you know it's funny i mean there are ultimately little things that you pick up from elsewhere that you 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 know you enjoy. I mean, I I always enjoy having you know the three panels of like action going on where like the 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 your your hero is like beating the hell out of some guy off panel and you're just like oh wow this is getting real bad because like you can't even see the other guy on the other side. Um, that moment in particular was also very much inspired. Um, Twenty eight days later is like it's both my favorite horror movie, but it's also like the thing that actually gives me nightmares. Um, I have like a pathological, I should, I had a pathological fear of zombies because I thought all zombie movies were going to be like 28 days later. And then I, in the pandemic, I've been watching a lot of zombie movies just to kind of expose exposure therapy. And I realized like, Oh, okay. No, 28 days later is just uniquely terrifying. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a scene, um, that scene in particular was an homage to, to one of my favorite scenes in 28 days later where um, Selena, um, the, 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 the uh, supporting character uh, uh, in the thing, one of her compatriots gets uh, tagged by a zombie and he looks down and he sees that there's like a tooth mark in his arm and she notices immediately. And then just like machetes the dude to death, like does not even. And um, that was, so that was like a fun homage to, to that moment. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, when I find, I find that my favorite character moments, I kind of, they almost kind of riff on the fly. Like I'm very, I'm very firm with my outlines in terms of sort of the point A to point B to point C. Um, I'm usually pretty tight on that. Um, and then I'm pretty tight on my beat sheets, or at least I, what I call my beat sheets, just page to page. This is what happens on this page. This is what happens on this one. Every so often, I kind of have to cut something to give something else a little more room. But I'm usually pretty hard and fast with that. It's once I've sort of broken everything down panel to panel, and I can start doing my narration, start doing the dialogue. That's when things, that's when real character moments start to pop out. And so um i'll i'll spoil a little bit of the story who cares um but we have we have a moment in danger ronin that, that you're referring to where um uh our lead character trisha um she says the thing that she misses most about being a danger ronin the thing she misses most about transforming isn't about the uh, speed or the strength or the the clarity of her mind um it's about not having to look herself in the mirror anymore 
because if she's thinking about it, they're or because they're not heroes anymore. And if she's really stopped to think about it, maybe they never were. And it was so good, man. It was so thank good. you. Uh, that's the that was the sort of thing that like I hadn't really. That's something that comes with just playing around with dialogue. And I I often have you know once I've gotten all my panels laid out. Um, then I can just sort of just riff, you know, and I can just have fun with the dialogue because then I already kind of have the actual action mostly planned. Sometimes there's a little bit of tweaking that goes on post dialogue, but it's like, okay, this action has happened. What's like the snappiest thing that I can write to really give that zing. Um, I've, I, I just wrote another anthology short, uh, before the Kickstarter stuff came in and the puppy came, but, um, where, um, without spoiling too much it's the kung fu horror um and so it's uh the dialogue that i was able to do for that i was kind of like oh yeah like that guy sounds badass um you know but yeah once you've gotten your whole story tracks laid down then you can kind of sort of i find i'm able to explore character a little more effectively uh because i can i just write out dialogue and i'll rewrite it and i'll rewrite it or i'll write five different versions of it um, Google Docs is my friend. I often have at least six different versions of any script I'm working on at any particular time. And so it'll say, you know, the OZ number one, Mark one, Mark two, Mark three, Mark four, Mark five, Mark six. Sometimes it's because I've, I've hit a fork in the road and I don't know which direction to go. So I just copy it, control a, make a new document and see where it goes. Um, but yeah, it's um, that's how I find my favorite moments in the books. I think it's just once the story's down, I get to play. That's so funny that you said you you have so many different versions. When I was writing uh, Forgotten Hymns, I got to page sixteen on issue two and realized mm-hmm. I had to go back to pa- page one, panel one, issue one, and rewrite, <laughs> like burn the whole thing down. I was like, yeah. oh no, like all of this is wrong. Like I hit, like it's one of those things. Like you hit a point, and you're like, oh, this is what it's about. Okay, so now I have to change yeah. everything. Here we go. <laughs> I'm I'm very ruthless like that in the um, outline stage where I will I I start with bullet points where I'm just like okay here's landmarks that I want to hit from this issue this issue to this issue and usually once I've kind of figured out what those are I can kind of game out how long is this book going to be is it a four issue is it a five issue is it a six issue um you know I kind of can get a sense of like okay I need to have a twist here and I need to have like a turn here and I need to have a cliffhanger here and how much room do I need to resolve that cliffhanger? Um, but yeah, it, I am a very slow outliner. Um, my outlines take me, they can sometimes take me, I mean, going to the chapel took me a really long time. I want to say that outline took me at least six months um, just because I was just, there's so many different moving parts to it. And I kept, I was like, I would write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And I'd be like, no, this doesn't work or no, this is too cute or no, this just like doesn't make any sense or it's too contrived. Um, I'm very bad at writing drafts because I've written so many permutations of the same script, but usually it's usually the outline stage. I do very little changes after that. Um, The OZ I did. The OZ is probably the most I've ever changed post outline um there's a character in the second chapter for example who 
um, their storyline was meant to be much shorter and based on some real life stuff that it was happening to me at the time uh, between when I had written it and when art was coming in, I was like, Nope, that character is getting promoted. Um, and so, or like there's um, the back half of that series, um, which I guess people won't see until sometime next year. It'll be part three. Um, I really kind of reshifted a significant chunk. So all the story stuff elements are more or less the same, but real I realized like, oh, the pacing was way off. And so I had to really kind of like compress our fourth chapter and give the fifth chapter a lot more breathing room. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's real trial and error for me. I mean, I don't know how it is for you, but like I, I spend weeks and weeks and weeks just beating myself up. Why doesn't this outline work? And, um, but thankfully once that's done, then it's just kind of like spot fine tuning usually of just saying like, Oh, I missed a thing. Like this thing doesn't feel right in the scripting stage. Got to like, you know, eat a couple of pages just to like make this, to, to do the right amount of runway for this, for, for this moment. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's just the outlining stage, the treatment stage is just so important to me. And that's when I'm really sort of able to just lay out the story without worrying about the pacing or the execution or any of the, you know, the, 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 the flow of it all. Cause that'll come just in, in the scripting stage. When, when you say outline, how yeah. like you're doing bullet points, like for me, my, my whole process is really, is really long and convoluted. Like <laughs> I have to, I have to construct the mental space and I, I've been trying to describe this to people. And the more I talk about it, the more I guess it's becoming a little <laughs> bit easier to articulate, but I have to be able to like hit play in the movie in my head before mm-hmm. I do anything. So like, I'm like, like just sitting daydreaming about whatever is going yeah. on and then I capture it. And then yeah. what I, what I have to do in my, and that's usually like my outline stage, but what I have to do is I have to write it longhand, almost like a novelization. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, with pen and paper and I write it out and I'm not writing like page one panel one I'm like writing like what's going on in the story like that's my outline and then from there I take that and I put like the bullet points like one through 20 and like I I figure out like all right what's and I could see I could physically see the the pacing of it and the flow of it and then from there then I get to the scripting part and I start scripting it and that's kind of how it's like it's like these three different stages that that it goes through agreed Absolutely. That's, that's, that's how I feel. I mean, I usually, I mean, I call it an outline. It's really more like a treatment where like, yeah, I'm just writing, this is what the story is. Um, You know, sometimes I build it. Sometimes I've got like initial bullet points of just like, I want to have a car chase here. I want to do, you know, Locke hallucinates and thinks that he's spaceman Spiff. I want to have, you know, he, he, uh, a scene of him in his childhood where, you know, he thought he was going to end it all. Um, and I'll sort of flesh things around those, those particular tent poles. Um, and then I'll sort of write, yeah, like a full length, just vomit. Here's the whole thing. Here's the whole story. And then, yeah, I do the bullet points where it's sort of, it's here. I know the story issue to issue. How do I chop it up into 20 chunks or 22 chunks or whatever? And usually that kind of helps me figure out like if there's something that's not important or if there's something that I was just going on a little too long about, I realize like, Oh, I probably need two pages for this particular conversation. So what am I going to cut? You know, what's not important here? Um, 
And then I do that same thing with the panels, panel to panel, where I'm kind of like, all right, I this page is five panels. I need to have a, a couple of splashes somewhere. So what's going to be the big splash images? And, you know, are there any pages that I can do less panels so my artist doesn't kill me? You know, um, I do feel like that's probably a weakness I have as a writer is I'm still, I, I still am a little too precious with it where I'm still like, I need five panels. So I'm going to take the five panels and I'm sorry to my artists. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's exactly it. I mean, it's definitely, it's three maybe even four different stages um, uh, before you've got a, a, what I would consider a working script. And that's just, if you only have one set of dialogue, if you have narrative captions and dialogue, you're essentially writing the same script twice, um, which, you know, it has its pros and cons, you know, the, 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 the con being obviously you're writing the same script twice. Um, the pro is it kind of gives you a little bit of a safety net. Um, it gives you that added depth of characterization because you can either get inside of the character's head or you can have a narrator describing stuff. Um, but um, it can be a crutch, you know? Um, but I do think it's a good tool, especially for up and coming writers. Um, it gives you another opportunity to really flex your voice. And it sort of also acts as a little bit of a catch all if the art doesn't quite match up what you were, what you were writing you can then tweak that narration to fit the difference in art and you'll know there's a difference, but the readers won't. Yeah. That's one thing I've noticed uh, with your work and you're really good at it. And something that as a writer, I really suck at is uh, narration captions. And I think it's become mm-hmm. is from my screenplay background. Like I, I've done so sure. much like super heavy dialogue drives everything like what, what's really interesting i was talking to, to clay about this and a few other writers and i was wondering if you're you're like this as well you it and it sounds like it so correct me if i'm wrong do you when you go to the scripting stage do you get all the action first and then go back and dialogue it yes or do you do yeah. it as you go see i i have tried that i've tried that I have mm-hmm. I have to know what the dialogue is before i get to the next thing because i want that reaction or, or whatever happens so- when I, when I started, the first time I started writing scripts, I, so I was working as a newspaper reporter. Uh, it's a little over 10 years ago. Uh, I, I, I covered uh, crime and state politics. And um, can I, can I stop you real I, fast? Real yeah. fast. I see a lot of that in your writing. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I um, but I wasn't feeling like, creatively fulfilled and at the time i thought i wanted to be an editor and i wrote a short script every single day and um i started dialogue first in those early scripts and i found that i was overwriting i was writing way too much um like because i'd 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 get all these like really cool flowery speeches and then you know looking now looking back at those same scripts i'm like oh well like i don't have eight panels to fill to fit that in you know um, so I feel like for me doing panels and action first gives me sort of that framework where I'm like, okay, I know what my real estate is. Um, whereas if I, if, for me doing it the reverse becomes challenging because then I'm like, oh, I've got to like tailor the whole page around this thing that I've dialogued. Um, but that said, you are certainly not the first person. I mean, Charlie Stickney makes fun of me constantly for doing it the way that I do it. Um, uh, because yeah, he's like, I write my dialogue and then I write my, my stuff around it. It's probably, uh, a, a very organic way to do it. Um, 
but yeah, for me, I need to, I, that's the thing I love most about comics is I just, I need those rules in place where I'm like, this is my constraints. Um, this is what I have to work within. And then I can figure out a creative solution for that. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it's also just really challenging, uh, you know, because you have to write sort of what's going on in the moment, but then you have to also sort of like hit it at a different angle from the, the character's perspective. Um, and yeah, I mean, ultimately it's, it's, it's a little like a Hieronymus machine, you know, where it's sort of, it just, it, it, you write the, the narration so it works. And you you kind of quickly get into a rhythm where you're like, okay, this page doesn't really need captions, and or oh crap, I this this page feels a little threadbare. I should probably have add some captions in the mix. Um, but yeah, it 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 does make it makes for a more challenging writing experience. Whereas you know, going to the chapel has no captions. Um, Scouts Honor has no captions. Um, I wrote a, a YA sci-fi book um, over the summer. Um, that I'm trying to get some art on now where there were no captions and like that thing moved like grease lightning because like, yeah, you just write it once. Um, but that said, I am, um, and I'm actually writing something right now that's, uh, has a, a third person narrator, which is like a whole other can of worms. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's a trick of, of, of the comics trade that, I mean, look, you, there are certain shows and movies that do have voiceover i mean um ruby our puppy um uh, we've been introducing her to our tv by watching scrubs and so like that has like full-on narration all the time um but i think it's not a practice that's nearly as universally accepted as it is in comics because comics you know you only have a limited real estate so having that extra track so to speak um it's one more way of conveying information in a spot where you don't have a lot of information to convey information um so yeah i mean it's something that like all things can be a crutch if you overuse it but um if you can do it really effectively it adds another layer to to the story and i think helps give you a little bit more bang for your buck yeah i I love you say it's like another track because i definitely you know in in all all comics that i see that that use it it almost there's the ones that do it really well it's there's a, a really nice harmony to it right like the 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 image the dialogue and the caption and it really is a very fulfilling reading experience that a lot of times when you just have dialogue you don't get that you don't get that same thing you have to do different tricks you have to do different tricks it it it's one of those things like i might be talking out of school but whatever um you know there were times during the new 52 where you didn't really need to use captions, but that was just kind of a, a lazy way to get exposition across. And that's sort of like the worst way to do it. Like, I don't need to know about like what's been happening the last 25 issues of Aquaman because Aquaman is in like a big splash action page and he, he does a big, you know, amount of narration explaining how he got there. Um, like that's not fun, but, um, but you know, there's it's a fun way to kind of add a little bit of literary elements to it um you know i mean and i think that's part of the reason why i resonated with frank miller um you know uh growing up is because he and you might say it was a little bit of purple prose but i didn't know that when i was seven um but you know he's got a little bit of imagery and he's got a real kind of um 
tactile element to the way that he writes. And um, that's something that if you had a character saying out loud, you know, like, like, you know, the rain hit me like, you know, razors, you know, across my, you know, slashing across my wrists, saying it out loud doesn't sound like how a human being talks like that just sounds weird. But like, we all kind of have that suspension of disbelief that if you say it running in your mind, like that's just cool and stylish. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm a big fan of doing narrative captions, but, but uh, knowing full well that it is also a huge pain in the ass to write. <laughs> I, uh, I love that you said some of your, some of your work, they, uh, some of your work does not have, captions like uh going to the chapel and now scott scout's honor what was that like kind of um because we haven't talked about that yet and i'd love to talk about it because scout's honor just the concept itself is one of those things where it's like have you ever heard like a concept and then like you hear and you're like god damn it like how has this not been a thing yet (laughs) like like that's so Um, good (laughs) like thank you that's a great it's a great concept thank you um you know, Scout's Honor, um, so it's interesting because Scout's Honor is in a lot of a very different animal than anything I've ever written. And uh, it's not just conceptually, but like the actual execution thereof. Um, so, and this might be getting a little inside baseball, but this is primarily process-based, so I think people will want to hear it. Um so different publishers want different things for different uh, for for your pitches. A place like Action Lab, for example, takes what I call the image approach. They want you to have your whole creative team together. They want you to have six pages in a cover, if not a full issue. And you know, you pitch it, and they say thumbs up, thumbs down. That's kind of is what it is. Other places like AfterShock or uh, or Boom, um, they want to be a little bit more hands on in the development process. You know, um, uh, they. They have uh, multimedia partnerships, you know, and so they have a kind of a sense of what they want in terms of trying to figure out things for adaptation to figure out what fits in with the rest of their catalog. They do not want you to have a full creative team. And to be honest, they probably do not want you to have a full outline yet. Um, So what happened with me is I knocked on Aftershock's door pretty much consistently after the first volume of Spencer and Locke came out. Um, I knew Mike Martz um, from my time at DC. Uh, I knew Steve Rotterdam, their uh, SVP of marketing, also from my time at DC. Um, I had met Lee Kramer at conventions and I, I had uh, I had lunch with him out here in Los Angeles. Um, and so I, I pitched them a lot. And um, I, I, for various reasons, certain things just weren't the, weren't the right fit. Um, Aftershock, likes things that are four or five issues for example and so things like the oz or grand theft astro which are were written as six was just not going to fit there so um i pitched them log lines and just a whole bunch of log lines and lee had told me i said how many do you want and lee says send whatever you got which was lee's first mistake so i sent him i think like 10 maybe 12 and and um that's actually the idea that i had just come up with like a week prior. Um, and it, it came from um, this idea of history being kind of like a game of the telephone. You know, they say history is written by the victors, but I think it's more like history is written by the survivors. What happens if you have like a whole new dark ages 
and you find like one thing from the past. Like people are going to try to extrapolate meaning and continuity and connection because that's what we do. Um, the idea of, you know, what's a weird thing that a cult could use as their Bible. I, you know, I thought, oh, Boy Scout manual. And then I thought, oh, like that would make sense in a post-apocalyptic world. Like that would be a world that would reward these sorts of things of always being prepared and this sort of hyper-masculine, um, you know, drive to succeed at all costs because, yeah, it's a, it's a harsh world out there. You need to do what it takes to survive. Um, Aftershock, I think, realized how pressed the concept was before I did. Um, it was a weird book to write mostly during the pandemic. Um, we, I had pitched them the book initially, I want to say it was last July or August. And, um, they gave me the, they, they told me to, uh, flesh out an outline and that really kind of, um, uh, mutated the concept even further. Um, that had me introduce the idea of Kit being a woman and that's her secret in this cult that also has a big secret. Um, because so much of this book is about the corrosiveness of secrets, uh, as well as toxic masculinity. Um, and then I wrote the first issue, which really kind of fleshed out Kit and her relationship with, uh, Dez, who is the uh, Scoutmaster's son. Um, he's kind of the Loki to Kit's Thor. Um, then, you know, I think the book got officially greenlit around Christmas, but we did not get paperwork signed until about two weeks before everything shut down. Um, I signed the contract for the book, uh, bearing my dog actually. Um, so it was right before everything shut down. I was, I was, I, I, I had gone home to Missouri with my dog's body, which is a whole other weird story. My mother is a very religious Jew and she asked me not to cremate her dog. Um, and so writing 80% of this book during the pandemic was weird. I, I had kind of shied away from post-apocalyptic stuff since Trump was elected, to be quite honest. Um, I Maybe it's a little bit of magical thinking, but I was kind of thinking, like, what kind of energy do I want to put out in the world? Like, I don't want to put out something post-apocalyptic and have it be self-fulfilling. Um, but I feel like as this story kind of evolved, I realized, no, like, everything that I tend to write has that redemptive arc to it we started off in a bad place as I was writing this book, but as we're, where we're at now, we're sort of looking to turn a corner and that's sort of where we're at at the end of scouts honor as well. Um, the book was also semi autobiographical um, in the sense, obviously I'm not a post-apocalyptic cult member, but um, you know, Things ranging from uh, watching my younger brothers being the Boy Scouts, and I was not. And sort of like when you're in the inside, it's all about self sufficiency and practical skills and the camaraderie with your friends, um, but also a little bit of rivalry. Um, on the outside, you see the pageantry and the costumes and the laws, and it can seem a little culty. Um, but also growing up, um, I grew up in Missouri. Uh, and a pretty conservative Jewish household, uh, both politically and religiously. And I, I feel like I did not have my real political and religious or spiritual awakening until I left home. And that's really what Scouts Honor is about is it does not take much 
to pull out the rug from under you. And all these things that you took for granted for being fact might not be. There might be a, a, a whole other way to look at the world that you just don't know about. Um, and in the case of sort of growing up in a cult, not that I think Judaism is a cult, um, I, I'm a practicing Jew. Um, I consider it my way of throwing a penny in the well of the universe, so to speak. You know, it's my way of connecting with whatever force there is out there and also the people who came before me. But I think there's an element of, yeah, there's the spiritual values that you've grown up with, but there's the human institution behind it. And that can be flawed and that can be corrupt. um, And that can be profoundly ethically disheartening and disillusioning. Um, my, My partner, she grew up Catholic. Um, and when the uh, priest abuse scandals came out, that really drove her away from the church. She found herself thinking, how can I be involved with an institution that has allowed that to happen and, and swept it under the rug in, in many cases? That's a lot of the journey that Kit has to follow is how does she, you know, she's kind of losing her religion a bit. And how does she hold on to the values that have shaped her and in a positive way while still navigating what can be a very dangerous human institution that has sort of corrupted the greater scout ideals. Um, So yeah, it's, um, but it's also a story about a post-apocalyptic boy scout cult. So like there's a lot of action involved. And um, for me, I've always found that like whatever, you know, the things that I like to play around with have a lot of iconography to them. So, you know, for example, you know, the Ranger Scouts, uh, they have their own merit badges because I thought it would be cool that, you know, these troops, that these squadrons that come together, you know, all of your brother's skills just by one look. So, you know, you've got mainstays like archery or wilderness survival, but you've also got explosives and tactical driving, Um, uh, you know, and being able to also fit that element into the religious aspect. Um, I wrote some back matter. Uh, for the first issue. And one of the things that we wrote about was like an explosives merit badge because this world was ushered in by a bomb. So the scouts look at explosives with kind of reverence and awe where they're like, we need to know exactly how explosives work because they can be the thing that brings about change. But if we don't respect the bomb, it can turn around and bite us. Um, Things like uh, we talk about this a little bit later in the series, but um a, a rite of passage for these scouts is uh, you're given a switchblade. But in this case, the game of telephone has mutated it so much that they're like, oh, well, the original scouts, they all have these giant swords that had these miniature subblades in the housed in the main blade. So you could have something that could like shear off armor or, you know, could, uh, you know, puncture through a tank or, you know, could like light a fire with a flamethrower component. Um, and so these scouts are like, we got these big ass swords because that's what the original scouts had. Um, down to things like uh, the actual Boy Scouts have these scout laws that if you kind of squint, they can look a little cult-like. I mean, there is an actual scout law that says you shall obey your scoutmaster. It can, it can, it can go bad very quickly. Even things like, you know, what's an Eagle Scout look like in this world? That's something we'll be exploring later in the series. 
Um, that is a lot of fun. And that sort of keeps the series from getting too bleak. Um, you're able to sort of say, all right, like, you know, what's the wilderness look like out there? Uh, what's the, what are the creatures out in this post-apocalyptic world or the, the, the gangs of raiders? Um, what's their story in all this? And you sort of understand a little bit how this kind of world could spawn the Ranger Scouts of America. Um, and that I think really adds an interesting bit of tension to this book. Um, you know, they are in a, a world where the ends do justify the means to some extent, but you have to kind of figure out, well, what's the limit there? You know, um, kid is going to discover everything she's known is a lie. And is it worth perpetuating that lie in order to sort of maintain civilization? Is there a better way to do this? Um, these are all things that uh, she's really going to have to navigate over this series. Um, but uh, yeah, to go back to sort of your original question, just um, I did not do captions in this book and it was for a couple of reasons. At first um, I had read a lot of aftershock books and saw that many of them did not have captions. And so I figured, I assumed that was a house style. <laughs> I probably assumed that wrongly, but I just, I, I just was like, all right, I know there are some publishers that do not like narrative captions, I think because they find it harder to adapt cinematically. Um, so I said, all right, we're just going to not use that. Um, and uh, yeah, like I said, it, it it's a more streamlined process for sure. You only get one shot to kind of tell, to convey the emotion that you want to get conveyed. Um, so it moves a lot faster. I do think it becomes a less... Um, complicated way to write for sure Um, but I think it's definitely it has its own pros and cons because then you have to get your exposition out in dialogue and so there's different ways that you wind up delivering that exposition Um, and you do get a little less flashy with some of the descriptions but um, at the same time it's a more streamlined experience both writing and reading and I think that lends a certain degree of uh, immediacy um uh to to the reading experience yeah scout's honor looks absolutely awesome and i i thank you i can't wait to pick it up man uh how was it uh, i guess last question before we get out out of here um because we you know time flies we've been here for like two hours yeah i've been having a blast yeah uh uh i could sit and talk to you for hours i'm sure my wife to to my wife's dismay um (laughs) (laughs) uh what was it like working with uh, with Aftershock? Like you said, you yeah. you went to you went with them with just a log line. So what was like yeah. how, how many how much editorial feedback did you get, and how did that kind of shape the way you wrote this story? It was it was a very different experience. Um, you know, I feel like Scouts Honor has, I think, honestly, just as much in common with uh, uh, with the big two in in its editorial process as it would something create around. This was the first book. This is the first time that I've really worked with editors. Um, you know, I uh, even at Action Lab, they really did not have the bandwidth to give me editorial feedback. They could tell me if there was something wrong production wise, if there was something that would affect the printing. Um, and I'm sure they would sort of, you know, be some last guardrails if I like put something super egregious in the book. But they were not, they did not tell me one iota of what I could and couldn't do. And, and story um developing this aftershock was that a very different experience you know i had never for example had somebody to match make a team for me 
uh, for example. So when uh, my editors, Mike Martz and Christine Harrington, they were like, oh, hey, uh, Luca Casalinguida is available and we'd really like to get him on this book. Um, I was really excited. I had actually reached out to Luca for another project years ago and the schedule just didn't, didn't work out. So, um, you know, and same thing, Christina was the one that brought uh, Colors Batmilla on board uh, from, from Daredevil. Uh, and I kind of, when she said, oh, how would you feel about Matt Miller? I was like, am I allowed to get Matt Miller? That would be great. I'd be super excited. I just figured he was way out of my league. Um, and, and, and Carlos Manguel for, for our lettering. Um, it was interesting and a, a really fun learning curve for me, not being the central editorial conduit anymore. Uh, every other book, uh, you know, I would be going over every element of the thumbnails, every element of the colors and the and, and the inks and i so i would be the point man i'd be the one saying hey we need to tweak this we need to tweak this i'd be coordinating with all the different people um this i was the you know <clears throat> my editors were the central point of contact and so it would be sort of more of a, a, a back and forth where um you know they would not give me a ton of notes for for my script but the ones that they did i think really always helped improve the the the, the final work but things like coordinating the art for example um it became a really good lesson for me in, in figuring out and this is something that i consistently am, am teaching myself you know what are the battles you actually need to fight and what's just you being precious you know um I, i'm a little bit of a control freak i think it comes from my time in journalism editing you know where it's just you say you gotta fix this um i think with comics because of the sheer amount of effort that artists have to put in versus what writers do, you really need to be a little more judicious about it. I'm, that's, that's sort of my big lesson in the industry. Um, but in this case, we were working with, I would, I would discuss things with Mike and Christina. They would kind of figure out like, yeah, that sounds right. Or no, that's, you're being too precious. Don't worry about it. Which would then get conveyed to Luca's agent who would then translate everything to Luca. Um, and so it was a really good way of me kind of learning, you know, what hills did I really need to die on? And also what kind of information do I need to convey in my script um, to make sure that it makes sense for my artists? Because I didn't have that ability to really get into the nitty gritty with the conversation about the layouts. Um, you know, I think also was figuring out, you know, my publisher has, certain directives that they wanted hit with this particular project you know they had a particular vision that they want to hit and figuring out okay like where's the overlap you know there's the things that i'm interested in in this project and the things that they're really interested in and how can i tell a story that sort of weds these two aesthetics in a way that still resonates with the readership um that's something that i feel like if i want to stay in this business I, I'm going to have to learn that process. And I think Mike and Christina were great teachers in that regard. Um, really kind of just uh, also figuring out the pacing of it all. Um, this series came together faster than really anything I've ever worked on. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we've wrapped up uh, interior art in the series pretty recently, but you know, that means that we were doing five issues in eight months in terms of art. Wow. Um, That's fast. You know, uh, maybe nine months, but still like pretty, pretty darn fast. Um, 
and uh, Luca, you know, making sure like, what can I do to make sure that I don't kill Luca? You know, like he's already racing a deadline. So, um, but yeah, I think it was a really, is is a really fun experience. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm excited, you know, I've, I've got more stuff that I'm pitching aftershock now and, um, they've been really good to work with. And I think it's, it's just been a good process, um, working with a bigger publisher, you know, and also just me now knowing, Oh, I can go to, 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 to the plate and not choke. Um, you know, I feel like that's, it's a good way to kind of kill any imposter syndrome I had left. Um, and uh, yeah, I know now that like if I have a deadline and I have a project, it's going to get done. Um, I may kill myself to get it done, but it will get done. And um, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I feel very grateful for, um, for this opportunity. And I feel like um, I feel like Aftershock has been so open to kind of any little flourishes I want to throw into the mix. Um, in terms of the characterization, I think they've just, they were, they understood how prescient the concept was, I think, before I did. Um, because, you know, living in the world that we're living in now, where I think, you know, it is a little dystopian. And I, and we are living in a world where like toxic masculinity has really poisoned a lot of elements of our day to day life. And that women are often treated like second class citizens and often barred from opportunities. And, you know, even, you know, something that we explore in the book is like, you know, if women aren't treated great in this civilization, you know, what happens to a member of the gay community? Um, you know, that's something that we'll be exploring a bit in the series as well. Um, yeah, it just, it's, um, it was a really fun project to work on. And um, it feels very different than anything I've worked on. I think in a lot of ways, kit feels like the most hopeful character i've ever written and i think it's because despite sort of growing up in this apocalypse um she still has a sense of hope she's always the one who kind of feels like there is a better world right around the corner and um hopefully after reading this readers will feel the same way well i'm absolutely pumped and excited for it man i can't wait for it to to come out um it's definitely it's already on my pull list man so i really appreciate it yeah no worries man i'll I'll shoot you a message and i'll I'll let you know what my favorite scene is Uh, thank you thank you please yeah for sure uh before we get out of here where can people find you and and all that cool stuff um so people can find me on uh, on Facebook at David Pepos Comics or Twitter uh, and Instagram at Pepos D. They can subscribe to my newsletter, Pep Talks, at bit.ly slash pepnews. Uh, and they can uh, visit my website, davidpepos.com. All right, David. Thank you so much, man. It was a, awesome. it was a blast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I, pleasure was all mine. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.